Hello, and welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast. On this show, we bring you interviews with leading executives at today's rapidly growing B2B tech companies. We dissect the stories, strategies, and journey of CEOs, COOs, CMOs, and more as they share their professional journey. Tune in each week for new episodes from today's leaders. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B tech companies build and run revenue-generating podcasts. We set you up with weekly interviews with your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up and have engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Learn more about launching your podcast at contentallies.com. This episode is brought to you by Ad One Zero, where we do lead to close sales execution for B2B services companies with a technology flair. If you're looking to scale your company from six figures to seven figures of revenue, talk to Ad One Zero. Hey, leaders, welcome back. It's Ledge. Guest today is Chuck Myers. He's the CEO and president of Cogniac. And for those of you who are not watching the video, you need to go on LinkedIn and on our YouTube and watch the video because he has the best seat in the house right now. I'm seeing palm trees, all this stuff, much better than rainy Nashville, where I am recording right now. So, Chuck, welcome. I always say that you know, the guests can do a better intro of yourself and, and your company. So I don't try to do the, the magical intro. So, you know, fire away. Thanks for being with us. I appreciate it, Ledge, and uh, and nice to connect finally. Uh, yeah, Chuck Myers, I guess I'm a, a bit of a serial entrepreneur or serial CEO in, in some cases because I've run a couple companies that I didn't found uh, that were primarily turnarounds. I've been doing this for my whole career, a bit by accident than anything else. Um, and uh, at this point now, I'm, I've got another uh, company that, I, that I'm running with a couple great founders, brilliant founders. Uh, called Cogniac, which is doing uh, visual uh, artificial intelligence. So we do everything for work with the with the government to companies, auto big auto companies to big railroad companies and big timber companies. So if if you can see it, uh, we can run models against it, and we can find things in images that you know most humans can't. Right. So I can imagine all kinds of practical applicability to, uh, you know, pull pull stuff out for self-driving cars, pull stuff out for manufacturing, for natural landscapes, for mapping topology. There's got to be all kinds of stuff there. I mean, I, maybe I don't want to know what the government does with it. So we'll skip that one. But, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, maybe I won't tell you. <laughs> yeah. You know, if you if you think about it, you're trying to inspect things, you know, for one big uh for a big uh, train company, uh, Class One Railroad, we look at about 22 million train wheels a month mm-hmm. at 60 miles an hour and about 40,000 miles of track for every nut, bolt, screw, bonding wire, crack, and warp. And uh, obviously, no humans can look at that. And right. you're looking for for critical defects. And then you the software automatically finds it and elevates that up to an operations person can say, hey, call the train, stop the train. We have a problem on the track. We have a broken wheel. Um, you know, these are very significant incidents, as you can imagine, if if something sure. fails. For auto companies, we do a lot of stamping applications where, you know, you might be stamping the whole side of a pickup truck all at once. 
And these things are huge. They're 10 feet by seven foot panels. They come off about every four seconds. And we're looking for little millimeter size flaws in these. And no human could do it. They're just coming out too fast. And even with three people taking one of these things off the conveyor, they'll right. never find it. So, you know, glass particles and pharmaceutical vials. We look at x-ray images for lithium ion batteries for cars to make sure that when they're assembled, you know, there's no pinched wires, there's no broken wires, because you can imagine when lithium ion batteries burn up in cars, bad things happen. Um, so it's really, you know, it's really, you know, visual documentation and a visual system of records. So if you think of Salesforce as your ground truth of all your customer and sales data, and you think of SAP or Oracle as your ground truth for all your structured data, you think of Cognac as your ground truth for all your image data. And as you can imagine, companies today need a lot of image data. And where is it historically? And uh, that's right, what we right. do. And I imagine there's all types of applications here that you can kind of enable things that, you know, just weren't possible before. Like you talk about, like, you're basically enabling the speed of QA and some of those things that, like, exactly. you would have had to slow down the whole line so that humans could could do a thing that now machines can do in high precision. So it's really allowing yeah, for exactly. a great deal more production. So is this a, a track for you where like you're interested in this technology? You, you come and become a, you probably get invited to become a CEO of a, a thing like this. And like, how does it map back to your, your path where, you know, is, is it all about the technology for you or you look for an interesting opportunity to run or uh, how's, how do you think about it from the standpoint of being a CEO? I think about it from, you know, what's the technology? Do I think I could do something with it? And it just, does it just intuitively make sense to me? And would I buy it? I mean, if I was the CEO of a Fortune 500 company, could I use this and why would I use it? To me, this thing makes right, perfect right. sense. It's an interesting map back. Um, I took a company public a few years ago. I retired from that company, had no intention of going back to another startup. The founder of this company, of Cognac is a serial entrepreneur, started his first company or joined his first startup out of college, grew that to about $5 billion, doing eight, an ATM switch for, for the wired internet, basically, and then wired networks. And then his next company was a, uh, a optical switch company, which currently today is basically Sienna. Uh, that was uh, optical today even still runs most of the fiber backbone of the internet. And then he started a company called Ruckus Wireless, which became the third biggest enterprise wireless company in the world, um, doing soup, uh, using machine learning and artificial intelligence to manage wireless networks, Wi-Fi networks. And it became a very large multi-billion dollar company when he took it public. And then, uh, you know, he was trying to solve a problem of Okay, I with wireless. Wireless is a black art. It's it's a hugely difficult problem. I spent most of my career in it, and and Bill had as well. And they came back and said, "Hey, I made this work for wireless, so I just a general average technician could install a wireless network. You didn't know anything about need to know anything about wireless. You know how can we apply that same to to vision AI? AI's been around forever. People have been trying to do vision AI. It's a huge market." Um, but they really just count pixels in a picture and they can pixel mask, let's call it pixel masking, uh, to look for an, something's right or wrong and you reject a part or you reject something when it doesn't meet these needs. 
And the idea was, let's take that and make it so, you know, basically the software is making its own determination of whether it finds something. You don't have to know what's there ahead of time. And that's the fundamental problem. Uh, a roundabout way, I got a phone call from a headhunter. They've known of me. They'd, they'd call me a few times on some other on some other deals. And I met Bill and was completely taken aback by the guy. He's super humble, super technical, real down-to-earth guy. And I loved his background, and his track record is amazing. And I thought, well, you know, do I really want to do another startup? It's, you know, they got no money. We got to go raise money. We got to put together a business plan. And the I'll, I'll tell you the thing that really triggered it for me. If you go look at a lot of startups, you know, and you really see this in the Bay Area, they have very charismatic founders, surprisingly so for a lot of them are really young. You know, they're coming out of grad school at Stanford, something like that. And they have a great idea, great marketing, great business plan, great presentation, zero technical substance. And so when they're raising money, they really have to build the product. So the product doesn't end up necessarily to be what they started with. And it takes a long time, got to raise a lot of money to get there. Cognac, on the other hand, was exactly the opposite. Uh, you had a very technical founder, very well-funded from his personal pocketbook to start the company and build the technology. And I looked at that and said, hey, he just needs sales and marketing, and he's got a real company here today. And I was just taken aback by the thing. And so uh, it took me about six months. We talked for about six months before I joined the company. And uh, my uh, by luck of the draw, I joined February 28th of 2020. I went on one trip to get a contract signed in Detroit, came back, and uh, haven't been back in the office since. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and everything's changed along on those times, but clearly the description of all the things that you guys have been able to accomplish and deliver, it hasn't stopped you from booking more clients then. So what was that yeah. a, a difficult shift? It sounds like, you know, things just rolled right along. I, I know the sell by zoom thing and I've been an advocate yeah. for years and, you know, finally people are coming yeah. around to that. <laughs> yeah. I think it was, a, you know, it was an interesting process for me because I'm a pretty relationship driven guy. You know, we started the, uh, when I joined the company, we were going to do kind of a the next round. They had done an A round of about $10 million. We're going to do a 30 to $40 million B round after we kind of get the business plan put together the kind of the middle end of last summer. And around June, May, June, one of our investors came and said, hey, let's just do a, what do you need to get through 2021? Let's do a smaller round. So we did. We did a $10 million round. Probably could have done a lot more in the end because all of a sudden the venture market was very tight in the beginning. And then, but by June or July, I think kind of everybody had an idea of where we were going with, with coronavirus and um, the, the markets did open up and they seem to be pretty open right now even. So we did get that funding completed over the phone, got the business plan uh, built over the phone acquired customers over the phone. I can't say it's been perfect and it's probably been a little slower than I would have desired, uh, maybe not expected, but desired. And, uh, but we see it opening up right now. You know, there's a bunch of us in the company are vaccinated, can travel again. And um, so we're getting access to the customers. And so I, th I think that that's, 
that was an interesting, it's an, in, it's been an interesting paradigm shift yeah. for once, you know, in the early two thousands, everybody used the term paradigm shift. This was an instantaneous paradigm shift. I think for all of us. There was. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I, <laughs> it's even kind of, I wonder what your internal dialogue was like, like this is not what I signed up for. And, you know, so you were, <laughs> you know, you were kind of at the stage where like, I'm not going to do another start off, yeah. which I, I can't say I've, I've gone too far down that ride, but I'm like, you know, company yeah. number 13. I'm sort of like, I don't know how many more of these I can pull off. You know? yeah. like it's just, yeah, you it just do. isn't like it used to be where, you know, yeah. where I'm able to stay up all night and work 60 hour weeks, you know, kids and the whole thing. Yeah. And so I, I don't, you know, how's that, how's that fit into the, the picture for you? Like lessons learned along the path, you know, of the, the CEO and the entrepreneur. I don't know. You know, I, I, I like our guests to, to share the stuff that maybe other people take for granted. Yeah. I think that it's definitely been, I think it's a lot harder. I think that it's a lot easier when you can jump on a plane and go see a customer and kind of build that personal relationship and have lunch or have a beer or have dinner. And you kind of get to know them and you really start to understand. I'm, I'm a, I'm a big believer in trying to solve problems, like kind of see myself as a problem solver. And it's a lot easier if you have a personal rapport with somebody. And it's hard to do that on Zoom when everything is scheduled exactly one hour. Yeah. So my lessons learned out of this, I no longer do one hour meetings. Mm -hmm. I make them 45 minutes or something. You need some time to pick up a phone and communicate with somebody. Mm -hmm. And I do think it has taken away the ability to build cultures a bit. We're trying to do a really good job with it. But, you know, I have a lot of employees I've never met. I've hired 15 people in the last two months. I've never met a single one of them in person. So that's been been a little tough. I think the other the, the other interesting dynamic is the company is headquartered in Silicon Valley. And Bill, Bill, the founder, lives up there and which really in the beginning was really adamant. We've got to get people back in the office. We've got to get people back in the office. And I'm like, you know, Bill, we're not getting people back in the office, you know, legally, morally, ethically, you know, there's a million reasons why we're not going to get people back in the office right away. We'll worry about it, you know, in six months or, you know, obviously things stretched out. And, uh, but it's been interesting, you know, because our company, we don't really, the, the, we need software people in, in the Valley. But frankly, our customers are all east of the Mississippi, Latin America, and Europe. Yeah. And so eventually Japan, Korea. So, you know, I think that that even it's been interesting dynamic just to watch the whole company kind of shift that I think we've hired two people in the Valley. And everybody else we've hired has been literally all over the country or in Europe. And everybody just communicate. We don't care where they live. We got people in Montana and Tacoma and Boise and Italy doesn't seem to matter anymore. What and are, I, that's the fun part. One of the things that's been interesting for me watching this, this process, having been a fully distributed team of, you know, entrepreneur, like remote all the time is that yeah. the challenge that the biggest high tech companies and the culture of Silicon Valley being the one that clung the most to you know being in office and that that, that was yeah. a, like for us it's just i don't know i've never had a developer that was that was even like in america <laughs> so yeah. you know like I, I, to me it didn't make any sense to to cling to that and yet you did see 
cultural shifts that we all had to deal with. And those of us who kind of were always remote anyway, we're going, what's the big deal? Uh, the only big deal now yeah. is that my kids are home all the time. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is a little bit more difficult, but yeah, I, I get it. Um, and you talked a little bit off mic about, you know, sort of businesses that have to rely on somebody else's money and businesses that are cash flowing and building off revenue. Right. And, uh, you know, I certainly we're talking about, you know, orders of magnitude different if you're talking like, well, I start with a billion dollars versus I start with 10,000 or, you know, whatever it is. Right. But I think the same principles apply. I would love to hear your thoughts on running, you know, sort of running off revenue, even from the beginning, if, if you can, because it just, yeah. it's an order of freedom and all kinds of variables there. Right. Yeah. I think it, you know, it's interesting. And, and I think you mentioned in the same conversation we were talking about, do you bootstrap it? Do you run it? You know, do you raise as little money as possible or do you raise a lot more money? And I actually get that all asked all the time. You know, we're in an artificial intelligence environment, software. A lot of AI companies are raising huge amounts of money, 100, 200, 300, 400 million dollars for, for startups. And, you know, a lot of it, those tend to be what I call labeling companies. So they're doing a lot of work with autonomous vehicles where you have to label a lot of things, trees, plants, stop signs, crosswalks, all that. And in our business, we really don't have to do a lot of that. But there is no question that there is market leverage with money. And especially for us, we need to we need to touch. In the end, we're a platform. And so we need to touch as many markets as we possibly can. So the money really drives that. So it's a why why we can bootstrap it, you know, it really comes from scale. And you are we have very high gross margins, but gross margins on five million dollar versus gross margins on a hundred million dollars are two different things. So you really need to get into that. For us, we're going to need to get kind of that 20 to $30 million a year range to really be generating a lot of cash flow. So, you know, we're kind of going through that. Now, on the other hand, I've done companies that are 300 million where I've turned them around and they were losing a lot of money, but they still were generating cash. As long as you could fix the loss, you were generating a lot of cash. And I've had companies that, you know, had very little revenue, but we got them turned around and they really had the, they, they had the ability day one to have positive cash flow. And it's just a very different environment because you're not really beholding to investors anymore. And it's a different world being, being held to kind of your relationship with a board versus being held to a relationship with investors. And um, I have to say, it's a lot more fun just uh, doing what you can do with cash and saying, I know what my runway is. And I know, you know, if I sell this many widgets, I'm going to generate this much cash and I have this much cash to go do this much marketing or this much travel, you know, or, or, you know, this much technology development. And in a, uh, in a startup, like, like a Cognac, you know, you go raise money and you literally plan. I know I'm going to run out of money on this day. And it's a bizarre thing for a CEO to go, I'm managing my cash right out of the building. <laughs> You're trying to slow down right. uh, the outflow of that cash. But, you know, it's a, I have to say it's a bit of a painful process, you know. You want to replace the money 
that's being spent out of you know one place with the money coming into another essentially it's like making right. that shift to revenue and so the, the right. hardest part of the bootstrapping business is going i know exactly what i would do if i had any money <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah and and that's that's so common i mean you know when you start a business yeah. like that and on the flip side, I could say once you end up with a hundred times as much as what you were able to put in when you bootstrap, it feels really good. But yeah, it's never fast enough, and I think it's yeah, it's so much of the money is just being able to execute faster. If I if right. you really look at it, unless you're dealing with some kind of hardcore uh, capital expenditure, you like you literally can't have the thing unless right. you have the money to make it right. Yeah, we're, we are lucky. I mean, we have a platform and it works. You know, it's not like we're trying to build an electric car and we need a billion dollars or five billion dollars uh, to build the first prototype. You know, what we have works and uh, that does make it a lot more palatable. <laughs> That's for sure. Right, right. So if you were looking for an opportunity, you know, just generally speaking for the, the folks that maybe are thinking about getting involved with a startup. Uh, how do you evaluate that? Because I've had the opportunity where being, you know, second, third, fourth at the table, I'm not a founder, right. but I can come right. in and be maybe the first sales, you know, sort of sales leader or uh, the right. first COO. And I, I'm curious what your, what would be your heuristics to advise people who are looking for roles at startups, but no, you're not the, not the founder. I think, look at the, look at the market size, you know, is it, do you, is, is it really believable what people are telling you about how big the market can be? Um, because people tell you all kinds of things and I, I'll go back and you've probably heard this from a million people you've interviewed. Trust your intuition. Your gut is almost always right. <laughs> um, and uh, if it makes sense to you, I remember uh, my wife telling me one time she, she, we had a baby, and so she started shopping at shopping at Target a lot. She goes, "Do we own any stock in Target? <laughs> you know, we should own stock in Target." And it was a great investment, you know, because it just intuitively, this was a person knew nothing about business or anything else, but intuitively, it made sense that you should invest in this company. And I would, and I tell people that all the time, and it's really driven by the people. You know, are you working with people that are ethical? And are you working with people that, you know, really do have a sense of where they want to be? And, you know, those are those are the best metrics that I would tell people. If you're going to join a startup, look for those things. Make sure you feel it in your gut. Uh, and and by the way, make sure you understand it's hard work. You know, I think the the people that are that struggle in startups, it's not the people with their first job. It's the people that have worked in big companies. I love to hire people that have some big company experience, but it's tough to take somebody that's only worked in a big company for 15 years and put them in a startup. And, you know, they're looking for the HR department. They're looking to get their expense check cut tomorrow. They're, you know, they're looking for, well, where's the process document for this? It's like, hey, it doesn't exist. You better go create it. And they're the ones that t tend to struggle the most in, in startups and are more worried about, did I follow the process then? Did I just exec execute on what I needed to execute yeah, on today? Right. It's like kind of, uh, you need to have the retraining of, look, just do the next right thing and have a good reason. Uh -huh. 
you know, yeah, like, I always tell, I always tell people it's an 80, 20 rule, you know, get it right. 80% of the time. I mean, there are, you know, we have systems that are mission critical and those are a little different, but you know, that 80% or, you know, sometimes it's just gotta be 51% right. Yeah. But you better off to do that than to do nothing. And learn how to make mistakes that are less expensive. Painful. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like exactly. I've always had these sort of two two measurements of like I have this idea that you know as a as an entrepreneur the your you know sort of your maturity as a, a founder is directly aligned to the number of zeros you can ask for without feeling sick. And then on the flip side, it's it's design, it's it's right around you know sort of the the number of zeros attached to the last mistake you made, you know. So <laughs> that is that is that's so true. And uh, you know, it's when we talk about raising money, it's uh, you know you know what you need. Um, nobody wants to give you everything you need. So you're always kind of when you're on the fundraising trail, you're you're always paring it back uh, from what I need and what I want to. OK, what am I going to get to just get by to the next round? Um, and and it, that's a t it's a tough pill to swallow. It really is, because it, you're just looking at it going, wow, there's a lot easier way to do this. <laughs> but it's just the way the investment. World what would goes. say uh, what would say your best uh learnings from you know errors like when you think back and like the places that you pivoted around a big uh crash and burn you know <laughs> what 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 are what are some of those yeah. stories those are the best ones to me i think the uh you know one of my mentors this older guy who who's now passed you know he was a tough guy and uh he's a brilliant founder built a giant company but on the end he he was a maybe too tough of a guy. And I think that probably early in my career, you know, I probably picked up some bad habits from some of the mentors. So I know, I guess I migrated naturally to people like that because I was always about just do the right thing and just do it. And I didn't need a lot of pomp and circumstance and I didn't need a lot of coddling around it. So I think that, um, you know, I probably softened up a little bit as I've done two or three of these things. Haven't lost the passion, haven't lost the drive. That doesn't seem to change much. Uh, maybe a little smarter the way I work, but it, but maybe not much. Uh, so I think that 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 was a big one. But the uh, the other one is you know pick pick who you work with. You know if you really uh, if you just can't get there with the group you're working with, it's probably time to go do something else. And you, you and as much as you think you're you you'll you'll regret it. In the end, it's probably a better thing. And I think you, everything kind of goes through these cycles. So, you know, you'll, it will come, it will come a time where you got to say, Hey, you know, it's just time to do something different. So find people you like that share the same passion. You don't have to love them. You don't have to spend every waking moment with them, but trust them. If you can trust them, you're going to have a good outcome. I think you can, I haven't had any, uh, you know, I've had, failed in plenty of things, especially personally and all other, other deals. But I think that in most companies, if you have good people with you, you can grind it out. You're going to grind out a success. I've had a lot of doubles. I can't say I've had a huge home run, but I know how to get a double out of 
out of something. And, you know, it, and I think that's better than a lot of folks do. And, you know, you just know one of these is going to be the home run. Going. There's this mythical serial entrepreneur that just keeps hitting home run after home run. And just everything I touch is, right. you know, Midas and, and the whole deal. Right. And I, I, I'll be honest, that hasn't been my experience. You know, I, I've, I've kind of averaged yeah. out around, I'd say I'm mostly singles, a couple of doubles, right? <laughs> you know? and, and, yeah. but the batting yeah. average is pretty good. And, you know, when you look back and you say, did I, did yeah. I survive? Did I keep my family uh, well fed? You know, was I a, a good partner? You know, there are uh, the metrics yeah. of uh, and heuristics that can't be measured. You know, I think some of the things that that I've yeah. taken away. Uh, wisdom comes from you know, sort of recognizing a mistake earlier. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. You know, it's f funny. So much of it is just it's interesting luck. It it really is. You know, I have a uh, one of my best friends. His two daughters. Uh, his older daughter, his, her first job out of school was as an early employee in Facebook. And his second daughter out of school was employee one at Airbnb. So, you know, you gotta, there's that side of it. Um, and it's just, you know, super bright kids, but just luck. I mean, who comes out of school not knowing much and says, you know, hey, I'm going to go be, you know, employee 20 at Facebook or something like that. You just... It's yeah, that's just luck. right place, right time. I mean, so many, so many of the ideas yeah. like stuff you're talking about was impossible five years ago, you know, and now technology right. is, is catching up, but you needed to be right there because somebody else was going to think of it also, <laughs> and there's, you know, and there's probably yeah. <laughs> 10 companies that are, you know, barking up your back and you're trying to make it work. And, and that's the same at any scale, you know, like there's, there's right. 35 different people that you get called when I get a call to do sales or marketing for somebody and all of them right. are great, you know, and, uh, it's, it's just a question of, you know, keep, like you said, keep grinding it out. Although I have often thought that this idea of, you know, the grind out hustle culture is also not exactly right on. And you see the destructive patterns, uh, some people have taken that too. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. I mean, it, you you look at it, you, you know, I mean, you do have to be smart about it. And maybe uh, I think maybe that goes to the softening part I was talking about earlier. I mean, in the beginning, it would just grind it as hard as you can. You know, you can force the, you know, the square peg into the round hole, but there's easier ways to do it. If you give it a, if if you get a little more time, I think, you know, in the in the investment world and in the 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 one of the first companies I started, I had a lot of personal wealth invested in it. And, um, you know, you, you live and die by that, right? You think about that every waking moment, you know, look, I just invested my whole net worth into this thing. Is it going to make it? I can't let this fail. And so you put an immense amount of pressure on yourself. And frankly, you start to put pressure on other people around you. And you got to learn to kind of back that off a little bit. You know, I can say that now because, now I have enough of a track record. It's a lot easier to raise money than it was back then when I had right. not raised any money. Yeah, I, so much about that track record and networking. And and when you say about, you know, working with people that you like and respect, it's probably not only people that you, you know, sort of officially work with. You're really you're talking about that network that right. comes along with you. Uh, you, you should, Absolutely. Uh, many times I find with the serial founders that there's a, a people collecting 
disposition that, you know, through each adventure, maybe you accumulate one more team member that, that stays with you down the line, the people you can count on and give a call yeah. to. Has that been your experience? Oh, absolutely. You know, when uh, when Bill started Cognac, I think he's got six people he brought with him from Ruckus. Um, and they're all right. still here. And I came in and, you know, literally within, I'm like, okay, I've got to get this business plan together. I brought over a guy that we worked together on two or three companies together and immediately came in and he was doing it part-time, but, you know, jumped in with both feet and, and really helped me grind it out. And right now I have three people, two of which I brought in the last month that were working with me at other companies that called and said, Hey, I'm looking for something. You know, I want to come back and work for you. And I'm like, yep, come start tomorrow. We're <laughs> right. good to go. And, you know, and you just know what right. you're going to get out of them. And then, you know, they're going to be successful because they were successful before. And, um, you know, they're going to be successful again. And, you know, those usually are actually always the best. Oh, players. absolutely. And, and that it begs the question of, can you ever accomplish that team building you know, at that mind reading level of things are going to be great together without having just, you know, sort of been in the trenches and and building those early teams when you don't have that network. I wonder how people do it. You know, like that. I, I, I look at the teams yeah. I built when I was late twenties, early thirties, and I, I wouldn't do it again. You know, God bless them. But that, you know, I learned how to pick better. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. No, I think it's true. I mean, I think when you start companies early on, you end up with a uh, with a group of people for a lot of different reasons, but that's probably the biggest learning process is building your cadre, your your stable of uh, of the uh, folks that you can trust. Because you know you you may have kind of coalesced around a small group when you're starting a company or come up with an idea, but you know there's almost always one person that naturally is the leader. You know. Um, I remember in grad school, people would, you know, they were, they, they were doing these tests where, okay, who's going to be entrepreneurial and who's not. And you just kind of knew. And it's funny when you do the tests, they always kind of come out that way. And, uh, and the people that were entrepreneurial to this day are still entrepreneurial. And uh, the people that didn't come out that way, you know, it didn't mean that they didn't try to start a bunch of companies, but they weren't necessarily successful at starting those at running those companies. It's a, it's just a mindset. And, uh, and you do, people do migrate to their natural, you know, equilibrium of where they should be in a, in, uh, in the organization. And it, it does take that gut check. Um, and I, I think that we're trained out of in, you know, in sort of business school and things of that nature, like trained out of gut, maybe a little bit right. too much. And I, I wonder if that's yeah. to detriment because gut's a real thing. It's, it's your, it's your brain yeah. triggering your body to go. I am having a physiological response to this, to yeah. this collection of variables. <laughs> and I don't know why, yeah. and I may never figure yeah. it out, but it's real, you know? And, uh, yeah. but I think you also, you just described the, the, physiological description, I think, of a CEO or a founder. I'm not sure that, um, you know, 
kind of your normal every plate buddy in your team has that physiological response to I'm not sleeping tonight because I'm really freaked out about whether I'm going to get through this next investment call. You know, they're like, hey, I'm going to take my kid to the baseball game and I got to get up and I got to go to work. And if I'm 10 minutes late, it probably doesn't really change my life. But I think founders live on uh, Pepsi and Tom's because <laughs> because they're like, OK, did I do the right thing today or could I have yeah. done something better every morning? I wake up and say, OK, what can I do better today than I did? You yesterday? spend a lot of time going back yeah. and relitigating old decisions or do you just sort of draw a line and say, you know, I learned something and move forward? Very much. I, I draw the line. I'd like, okay, I made a mistake. You learn from, look, I've always said, and you've heard this a million times, and I think it's absolutely true. You don't learn anything from your success. You learn from your failures. So you, you just chalk it up. But, you know, it's kind of a debate I have with my employees all the time. It's like, stop worrying about what you did yesterday. If there's something wrong, how are we going to fix it today? Because what happened yesterday, it didn't matter whether it's Joey or Billy or Sarah's fault. It's irrelevant to the situation. The situation is we have to go forward now. How are we going to deal with it today and and not even look past? Let's try not to make the same mistake again, but you might. And, but, you know, we got to look at where we are right now and you, and you can't litigate the past because you'll, you'll stop moving forward the minute you do that. You become paralyzed with your own fear. And it's, it's really easy in a small company to be yeah, paralyzed. To accidentally communicate that to everybody else. Uh, if if exactly. I've learned anything about being the, the boss is sometimes I don't like it because I telegraph, you know, I, yeah. I, I don't hide very well that I'm in a bad mood. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so. yeah. yeah I agree with you. You know, there's those times, you know, when you're worried about stuff and, and you start to telegraph it, you, you really have to be careful about it. I, I'm probably better at it than I am at work than I am in my personal life. Yeah. But um, I think that, uh, you know, you, you do have to be careful Absolutely. with that. Well, Chuck, tons of wisdom. I could go on and on and on picking your brain, but uh, you got palm trees to sit under. And uh, so appreciate <laughs> you uh, coming out here and sharing, you know, for the audience. Uh, anybody wants to reach out to you? Is there a, a good way to do that for you and Cognac? Yeah, the best thing is just chuck at cogniac.ai. And um, I, I'm always happy to uh, to chat with people and share their experiences. And, you know, some of my best business relationships have come out of random reach outs like that. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming out. And uh, we wish you well in the coming year. Thanks, Sledge. I really appreciate you taking the time and inviting me in. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed the show. You can see the show notes and more links from today's episode at leadersofb2b.com.